Hey guys, thanks for tuning us in for this 10th episode of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests in this episode are CBS News and Washington Post correspondent Wesley Lowry, comedian Nate Bargatze, consumer advocate and former presidential candidate Ralph Nader, singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Ray Parker Jr., and U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee. If you would, please take the time to subscribe, drop a like, comment, or leave some feedback. Our first guest is news correspondent Wesley Lowry, who's not only a correspondent for CBS News and The Washington Post, but also has features in the Quibi series 60 in 6, presented by 60 Minutes. We'll talk about the latest episode that deals with the unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I think the center of the universe right now uh, kind of revolves around Kenosha, Wisconsin, and uh, we're uh, honored to have the chance to visit with a correspondent from uh, CBS and uh, 60 in 6 on Quibi. Uh, We've got Wesley Lowry on the line with us this morning. And first off, Wesley, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Now, now, Wesley got a new episode of, of 60 in 6 from 60 Minutes. And uh, tell us a, a little bit, delving into the, the story there in Kenosha, and, and you got firsthand uh, up close and personal on this one. Certainly. And so this was a, a case where, you know, a police shooting, one of the rare cases um, where the person in the viral video lives, uh, Jacob Blake, protests, demonstrations, riots, looting, burning, and so, again, unfortunately, a story that we've seen and covered so many times. And so when I got to Kenosha, two of the main things I wanted to, to talk, or two, main, two of the main people I wanted to talk to were members of Jacob Blake's family, but then also Rayshawn White, who uh, was the young man who took that viral video. And so we spent some time on the ground uh, talking to both sets of people and just trying to get a sense of, you know, what, what had happened here, who was this person, and, and where do things go from here? And for you, speaking with uh, with Ray Sean, uh, did you see remorse about kind of what has transpired as a result? I mean, I mean, I know it's not his personal responsibility, but uh, is that what you saw in Ray Sean? Certainly, you know, he's in, in many ways racked with anxiety about this. You know, you got to remember, this is a twenty-two-year-old kid has nothing to do with the with the altercation. There's a commotion outside, sticks his head out the window, because, look, we're all, we're all nosy neighbors, right? Uh, sees what's going on, and, and pulls a cell phone out, right? And, and because of that, we see this shooting. We, we don't know that there would have been video of, of the shooting itself were it not for Sean White. But in the weeks that have played out, he's sat in his house, um, and he's been stressed about a lot of this. He sees the protests. He sees the businesses being burned down. He sees the shooting that followed with Kyle Rittenhouse showing up and shooting multiple demonstrators, killing two of them, right? And he's sitting, Rashawn's sitting in his apartment thinking, maybe all this is my fault. I'm responsible for this. What if I had just never taken that video? What if I just never posted it? Now, he knows that that's not a fair weight to put on himself. He knows that he did the right thing, that it's good that people have seen what happened. But it's tough for him. And I think that sometimes when these big, massive stories play out, we, we forget all the people who are touched by them in this way. This is something that will change his life. Um, and he wasn't even directly involved in it. And, and when you're up there first, uh, firsthand seeing the, uh, the, the devastation has taken place, uh, what, what did you learn from your time in Kenosha and, and the coverage that you did? Well, look, I, I always, when I drop into a city, I always think about how 
uh, each place, every neighborhood of a community, every state, we all have unique histories, we have all unique contexts, right? And then there's a lot of similarities, but Kenosha is a little bit different than Milwaukee, which is a little bit different than Chicago, which is a little bit different than Cleveland, right? And so because of that, a lot of what I want to spend time doing was trying to get to know Kenosha. And, and you know, look, Kenosha is one of these cities that's in... It's in uh, southeast Wisconsin, and so it's kind of smack dab between Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, that these are places that used to be big auto manufacturing parts of the country that lost a bunch of those jobs. A lot of people kind of got stuck there. Um, relatively small uh, black population there, but really impoverished. A lot of inequality, a lot of inequity, and so what you see are people here who are who feel very fed up, right? So they're frustrated by what's happening. And I think that history, that concept is really important. And, and do you think uh, if it wasn't for being 2020 and all that other stuff that is going on around the world that maybe uh, it, we would be easier to try to resolve maybe the differences but that, that, that we're facing right now? You know, it could be. I, I, I do think we got to remember how how fraught these conversations were even five years ago, six years ago, right? We're six years out from Ferguson, and so, and, and what, seven years out from Trayvon Mark and George Zimmerman. Unfortunately, American history is dotted with these flare-ups of racial tension and frustration, in part because we haven't always done the best job of resolving the underlying issues that go back to the core of our history. And so I do think that the year we're having factors into that, right? This is just a tough, frustrating year for everyone. Uh, with the pandemic, it's an election year, so we know that, you know, ratchets up all types of frustrations and tensions. But I, I think that there's a... Um, uh, but, but, it, but so two things can be true. I think that this year is particularly fraught, and also these issues have always been particularly fraught. And, and do you, Wesley, for you, what what does it take? What what are we going to learn? How are we going to change? And, and and what can we do to to actually move on? So I think on these issues specifically, in policing, you know, policing are these are local issues in a lot of ways, right? We have a national conversation about that, but there are eighteen thousand police departments in the country, and they um, and they all operate kind of on their own sets of rules. They pass their own policies. They have their own use of force policies. Their own uh, accountability and transparency policies. And so I think that for folks who are engaged on these issues, one of the first things they can do is get engaged at the local level, right? What's the local police union contract saying? What's the local council doing on use of force issues, right? And, and start moving those things along at a local level because, uh, because unfortunately it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily seem clear that there's going to be some big sweeping federal change and then we wake up and it's all, it's all good. And and Wesley, I want to make sure and, and let our listeners know where they can uh, where they can check out the, the the new episode and also find out more information about everything you've got going on social media wise as well. Certainly, and so I and, and so our work is uh, is sixty and six. It's a spinoff of sixty minutes, and it's available on the mobile app Quibi. And so what you do on your phone, download the app Quibi. Sixty and six should pop up among the shows, and you can see this segment as well as all of our work. And I'm uh, Wesley Lowry. My social media is all easy. It's all my name, W-E-S-L-E-Y-L-O-W-E-R-Y. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or wherever um, and see all the work I'm doing, not just with CBS, but also um, some of my written work as well. All right. Well, Wesley, it has been great to visit with you this morning. Hope you have a, a great week and uh, stay safe out there, my friend. Of 
course. You too. Thanks so much. For more information, follow all his socials at Wesley Lowry. Next up, I had the chance to visit with one of my comedy favorites who visited with me about two weeks before the lockdown started taking effect earlier this year. Nate, first off, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. Now, when you go out on tour, I mean, how, how much different is uh, is the touring like that as as opposed to just uh, going to the little comedy club and doing a little pickup? How much pressure is that? Uh, it's just so different. Now, it's, you know, it's every night, so you do... You're in a different city every night. We have a tour bus now. And so we get a bus, and I got my opener, my tour manager on the bus. And you, you know, depending on what time you got to be in the next city, you might leave at like 3 or 4 in the morning, which you just sleep on the bus, and you wake up in the next city, or you do it the next, or whatever the next day. The bus is very cool. It's, it's very fun to do it. But it's just it's such a different thing. I mean, you're just going... City, city, you know, you walk in a different theater every night, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't, it's it just, it's, I don't know, it's just a bigger show than it was. Like, a comedy club was, comedy club's awesome, but it's now it just feels like such a different thing. It's such a big, big show when you do it. Now, what, uh, it, how, how cool is it for you that uh, that you have to go back, and, and I know one of my favorites in, in, in your last bit was the having to do the updates on, on former uh, former jokes that you had. What's it like to get the, the response from folks wanting to hear even more about that? Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's, you know, I was glad to get to do it. Like, it was fun to get added in, like, cause I, I, well, A, that it was, some of the updates was kind of crazy. And then you're like, all right, well, I kind of tell everybody this. And then, you know, so then I had a Starbucks update. Uh, and it was fun to get to try to do it and do it away on a special where it's like you're not telling the joke completely again. Uh, you know, you can't, because I'm a Netflix special, I can't just go do the joke again. So it, was, it was a way to try to, like, do that. But then also if someone's never seen me, like, they would then be like, well, what is happening? Uh, and I told, you know, I said in the special that they can stop and go rewatch it. And I've had a few people, like, tell me that they stopped and went and rewatched uh, what was going on. So that, that's what that was pretty cool. But, yeah, it's fun. It's very nice if you want to hear these updates or hear old jokes. And usually on the, in these live shows, I, I usually close with, uh, I, you know, I do, like, a little bit of an encore. And I do some old jokes at the end. <laughs> And what kind of pressure does that put on your fans then? Uh, that that it's got to be an encore to to get to to get to hear that. Uh, yeah, yeah, they it's got to be good. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I like that. I have the threat. I hold the threat over them. And then uh, most of them they're still like, yeah, we don't care. And I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah, it's very funny. And Nate, what what do you think of as you, as you look back over your career, starting out in uh, uh, Old Hickory, Tennessee, and and now doing stages all across the U.S.? Uh, how cool is that to to look back and see w- that the work has paid off for you? Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's uh, I I truly appreciate it, and like, I appreciate all the you know the fans that come out. I mean, it's you know it's it's unreal. It's uh, and I try I try to take none of it for granted. It's very hard. It's, it's you know, it took a lot. I've been doing comedy for 17 years, so it, it just takes a it takes a long time to build something up, and you know, it's not easy. And you got to be around. You got to write all the time. You got to have new. Got to have a new hour quite a bit. Uh, so 
it's it's a ton of work, but you know it's it's so much fun, and it's so much. You know, when you have people that kind of know you and they know your voice and they know your rhythm and stuff like that, that's such a big. That's the whole beginning is like getting people just used to. You. Like I used to always talk. You know, I talk with this energy. Like I don't know. It's like how I talk, and uh, it's slow. <laughs> it's not. So like when people don't know, they they're always like. You're like, oh man, you're not very really excited. You're like, I don't know, man. This is how I talk. I don't like this. Is, it is what it is. I'm very excited. And so the whole beginning of your comedy is just getting people used to hearing that, so they don't, you know, they're not like, what's what's wrong with you? And then you, you know, but you got to learn how to like win them over pretty quickly. So you're like, that is my excited face. Yeah, and I, I would say it on stage. I go, I don't know what to tell you. I'm so excited. I don't know how this is just how my excitement is. This is what it is. That's awesome. Now, if folks want to come out and see you live in concert, Nate, where can fi- people find out more information about tour dates, ticketing, and all that as well? Uh, you can go to my website. I, uh, I am Nate, or NateBargetsy.com. In Oklahoma City, I got, uh, there's a Justin Smith, a local comedian from there. He lives in New York now. I've become good friends with him, and he's uh, open for me out there. So that's a fun that's fun when you get to come and do a show with someone too that's, uh, you know, from there. So we're excited for, excited for Oklahoma City. <laughs> and that was said with your excited voice. That's awesome, Nate. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's how my, yeah, trust me, he's good. Don't listen to my voice and not think he's funny. Here, this show's going to be that. This, this show will be good. I know I don't make it sound like, it's like, oh, man, I don't know. Nate doesn't sound like he's going to be there. <laughs> Well, Nate, look forward to uh, look forward to the show and and seeing you again and again. Uh, for more information, you can follow him uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and all that, and at natemargatzi.com. Nate, hope you have a great rest of your week, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Of course, you can keep up with his tour dates, social media, comedy specials, and merch by visiting natemargatzi.com. Up next is Ralph Nader, who has been a leading consumer advocate over the past 50 years, and he's got a new family cookbook that we'll be visiting about. When you hear his name, you think of cookbooks, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Ralph Nader on the line with us. And first off, Ralph, thanks for the time. Excited to talk about the new cookbook. Well, thank you, Cameron. Now, this is uh, the love of food, and, and, and I think the, the, the family time is as much a part of the new cookbook, the, uh, the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook. And Ralph, how, how much of a release is it for you to be able to share this with other folks out there? <laughs> it's a big one because it's one of the few books I've written that everybody's going to love. These are delicious and nutritious recipes. The ingredients are available inexpensively compared to steaks and chops and grocery stores, and it's easy to use these recipes. They're not rigid, specific, confused recipes. Uh, they're mostly by my mother, and it's more than a cookbook. I had an introduction which shows how my mother used food to improve our upbringing, keep us from whining about food, learning about how it's grown. We had a little garden, and uh, and, and, and the recipes, are, whether they're appetizers, soups, salads, main dishes, uh, desserts, are all uh, extremely nutritious. And there's no distinction between nutrition and being delicious. They're avoidable, excuse me, they're affordable and uh, available in organic form as well. There's a lot of organic 
versions of these vegetables. So stuffed grape leaves, um, cracked wheat called burkhul with Swiss chard, lentils with rice and onions, uh, hummus, of course, which is po- popular, a great vegetable uh, dish called tabbouleh, heavy with parsley, uh, and desserts that are nutritious as well as sweet. Now, you know, we, we talk about being uh, from a Lebanese background and, and the foods being Lebanese comfort food, if you will. Uh, what are maybe some of the, the, the Lebanese dishes that, that just the average American is, has become accustomed to and, and maybe not even realize the, uh, the, 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 the backstory of it, if you will? Yeah, I think when I was growing up, uh, you know, my friends would come over and we were kids and my mother would offer them uh, yogurt and they would, you know, grimace. <laughs> and humbles, forget it. Uh, now you see, uh, uh, tastes have changed and there are all kinds of Middle East restaurants uh, around the country. Uh, so uh, I think that's one reason why this book will have some resonance because it's not some exotic cuisine anymore. Uh, people buy some of these things in the supermarkets. Now, the one thing about this book is everything is made from scratch. There are no processed foods. Uh, and uh, you're not going to get uh, mashed potatoes in a plastic bag. Uh, and so, in, in that sense, you can see the when you cook the food, the aroma, the taste is retained, which is all part of the pleasure of eating, of course. And for you to be able to share the the anecdotes that go along with the recipes in the cookbook, for you uh, to to be able to share what uh, what family food in that time means to you on a personal level with other folks and and the importance of that family time. Well, my mother connected obviously food with health. If we like to run faster uh, at school uh, during uh, playtime, she'll say, "You know, this will help you run faster." And she also connected food with culture. Where did the food come from? Who who developed these recipes and why? And and then she connected it with our own schooling and uh, conversation. You see, when we were hungry around the table, she had our undivided attention. There was no TV, you know, there no cell phones, the uh, computers then, and the radio was strategically placed in another room. So we we developed the art of actual conversation in reality. Something to be said about that. And uh, again, the, uh, the the new book, Ralph Nader and uh, Family Cookbook, Classic Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. Ralph, always want to make sure and, and let folks know where they can pick up the book already in stores as well. Yeah, it's wherever bookstores are. Uh, you know, they can always uh, get it from bookstores, especially in shipping uh, innovations today. And, of course, they can get it online. And it's a beautiful hardback. And the print is large and dark, which is good when you're in the kitchen. You don't want to be squinting next to the stove. That's right. Again, Ralph Nader and uh, Family Cookbook. Check it out. Looking forward to spending some more time with it myself. And Ralph, it has truly been a privilege to visit with you this morning. And I hope you have a safe rest of your week, my friend. Well, thank you for all of us. Thank you, Cameron. More information on that and all of his other writings, please visit nader.org. Our next guest is a Motown legend in his own right, Ray Parker Jr. He's done it all from background vocals, instruments, writing, producing, you name it. A new documentary is coming that we'll be chatting about. 
All right, guys, promised you another very special guest. And, uh, man, live, so many songs, uh, so much music, uh, acting appearances, all that. But a new documentary called Who You Gonna Call? We're going to talk with Ray Parker Jr. about that. And first off, Ray, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks for having me on here. It's nice to be all over the world at the same time. And Oklahoma, I love it. <laughs> now, now, Ray, obviously folks know you for uh, Who You Gonna Call? The Ghostbusters theme song. But, uh, man, there's so much more music that, that, that folks may not realize that you have uh, th- that you have been firsthand in, uh, in seeing made. And, uh, for, for you, how cool is that to be able to kind of sh- share the story with the new documentary? Well, that's what I think is a really exciting thing. You know, uh, the director of the film, he actually thought my career was a little shorter too. And, you know, we were going to Australia one day, which is 17 hour flight. So I had his attention, you could say. And the more we talked, he said, I want to do your story. He says, I didn't know that. He says, nobody in the world knows all of this stuff. And I said, yeah, it's a pretty interesting story. You know, it, it grows, you know, starts with me growing up in Detroit and the whole journey to all the way to why did anybody call me to write who you going to call in the first place? So it's really an interesting story. And I think the public and especially kids and anybody who's aspiring to be a musician will really, really love this film. And and obviously, Ray, everybody has the ups and downs, but but to 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 keep aspiring to be better, to do better, and and to see that finally pay off for you. I mean, that's that's the ultimate story that's uh, of of success and fighting against the odds to to prove your your own worth, right? It absolutely. And trying to impress my mom and dad was probably the biggest one. You know, <laughs> they were like, "He's a loser. He's not working at Ford Motor Company. He's not building cars." You know. And I was like, Dad, Dad, I just want to drive the cars. I don't want to build them. <laughs> now, who who had the biggest influence on you when everybody else was saying no, no, no? Who was it that was always in in your corner that was building you up? Well, actually, my parents. They thought that the music was a great thing to me because it kept me out of trouble. And uh, my dad didn't want me to do it as a career. He was like, son, it's just a nice hobby. You know, now you got to go to college and learn how to build cars. I was like, but Dad, I want to keep playing the guitar. So that's where we actually parted, you know, I mentally parted ways there. And I convinced my dad that my dream was to play the guitar and not work in a factory. So he accepted that. And then a few years later, I bought him a house, and then we were really okay. Now, now, <laughs> when was the moment that you knew that you had made the right decision? What What was the, uh, the, 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 the defining aha moment for you? Uh, I'm going to say the defining aha moment was after Jack and Jill became a hit because that made me a recording artist. Whereas before I was waiting on the phone to ring and working for everybody else, you know, which which is a wonderful thing. But when you work for everybody else, for some reason you don't know if the phone's going to ring or not. You know, maybe one day it won't ring. So I always wanted to be able to play music and you know ring my own phone, call myself for the job. And uh, w- with the, the the new documentary out, and uh, to see the buzz that it's been uh, been causing, all the all the talk that's going on about it, to to see that excitement about a project for you, uh, how uh, how validating is that for you about your career? It's wonderful, and and I tell you, all of the people in the movie, starting with Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, Bob Skaggs, Holland Dozier, Holland, I mean everybody, Bobby Brown. I mean, it just makes me feel good when I hear them talking. It makes me feel like I'm part of the planet Earth, and I did have some contribution to make here to make people happy. And I think one of my favorite uh, stories that I saw was uh, was whenever you were working with Stevie, and uh, he was wanting you to come play a, t- a tour with him, and, and you thought it was a crank call. Is that right? 
Yeah, I hung up on Stevie Wonder a few times. And then about the third or fourth time, I put some four-letter words that I shouldn't have put in there and still hung up, you know. And I, I, it was hard for me to believe that he was calling because Music From My Mind was my favorite album. And that's all I had in my car at the time. And I never met Stevie Wonder, and he never met me. So what, what's the odds of Stevie Wonder calling you on your personal phone at home? I mean, it's just I didn't think that was possible, so I kept hanging up. And then, you know, about the fourth or fifth time, he played me the rhythm track, Superstition. And I went, oops. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, so the party was on ever since after that. And being able to to work behind some of the the artists that you were was that kind of helping you develop your own craft and identity as a, as an artist as well? Absolutely, I'm going to give the the most of the credit to Stevie Wonder because he taught me how to write songs, and how to put it all together. But you know, when you when you start to do that, and you're working with Marvin Gaye, and you're working with Seals and Cross, Tom Jones and Paul Anka, and everybody else, what it does is you watch them do it, and at some point you say. You know, I've been seeing everybody else doing this, and they have me playing my guitar part on I think I can do this, you know. And so you build up your confidence, and next thing you know, you go out and try it yourself. And again, the uh, the, the new documentary, and that uh, you can check it out, it is uh, Who You Gonna Call? And Ray, I always want to make sure and uh, let folks know where they can find out more information, not only about the documentary, but everything else you got going on as well, my friend. Well, I'm on every social media thing, from Instagram to Facebook. And believe it or not, I started in the late 90s, so everything is in my name. It says Ray Parker Jr. I didn't have to go over like Ray Parker Jr., 83 plus and none of that stuff. <laughs> just, you know, everything is just Ray Parker Jr. But the only thing that ain't looking good is my website needs to redo. It's time to remodel my website. But it is there, and that's RayParkerJr.com. So you can find me on Twitter, Ray Parker Jr. You can find me on Facebook or, or Instagram, anywhere. Just Ray Parker Jr. All right. Well, Ray, always great to visit with you, sir, and I hope you have a great rest of your week and can't wait to get to spend some time and checking out the documentary myself. There you go. Thank you so much for all your help, and hopefully have me back on after it comes out and we'll talk about it. Find out more on his website, rayparkerjr.com. And our final guest is U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, whose new book is entitled The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Seeking the Best for Family and Country. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee has a new book. It, uh, I thought it'd be a great visit this morning, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Seeking the Best for Family and Country. And first off, Senator, thank you so much for your time this morning. I am absolutely delighted to join you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the, uh, the, the tell us a little bit about the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, and, and the, the timeliness of this, if you will. Oh, my goodness. Is it ever not perfect for this season of life in our, in our country? And, you know, I have to tell you, Cameron, uh, I ended up writing the book because I would be out speaking to women and to women's groups. And many times they would say, you know, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm an independent. I'll look at issues and I'll look at candidates and then I make my mind up. Well, I would always say, tell me what is important to you. And I would repeatedly hear, well, you know, I think that we're We should be a nation of laws. I like that. I want us to abide by the rule of law. I think there should be equal treatment and equal justice under the law. There should be fairness for everyone. 
everybody should have a level playing field. Government should not pick winners and losers. Everyone should have equal opportunity. We know you can't guarantee outcomes, but I think everybody, my kids included, they should have the ability to dream big dreams and have their shot at the American dream. Well, what I realized was that basically what most women who would say they're apolitical, what they're telling you, is that they tilt toward a conservative set of values. They don't want government running their life. They don't want government running their business. They don't want government deciding where their children are going to school, what their children are going to learn, what type of education their children are going to get. They, as citizens and taxpayers, want to weigh in on those decisions. And so it led me to looking at this, writing a book. And then I also was looking at the issue that conservative women face, which is being constantly harassed by and beat up by the mainstream media. You know, if you're a conservative woman in 2020 in America, uh, you, if you are pro-family, pro-life, pro-business, pro-military, then what do you have from the media? You have the media saying, well, your opinion really doesn't count because what you should be for is what you're being told is women's rights and women's empowerment and women's accomplishment. And there is this tendency in the media and in liberal women's groups to say, if you're a conservative, you are not going to benefit from those opportunities. And indeed, um, a day before yesterday, I was talking to a young woman who had just been recognized for some significant accomplishments. She's a conservative. And she had been so hurt by hearing through some mutual friends that their friends who are Democrats were astounded that she was recognized and felt as if she had no right to talk about women's empowerment or female accomplishment. Why? Because she is a conservative Christian pro-life individual, and she doesn't fit that mold of what should be an accomplished female, that mold that the mainstream media puts out for people to say, okay, this is what women should be about. And and for you, do, do you think, have, have you noticed as a result of, of COVID-19 and, and the coronavirus, I, I, I've talked to some some different folks, and one of the things that people, uh, they say that people are dealing with this is in a, in a sense of grief, is as a grieving as to what they've lost. And do you think that that has maybe pushed things over the edge emotionally for, for voters and, and for those that are uh, getting intense leading up to the election? I, I think that what it has done is to cause people to look at what is happening in their communities and in society in general. And it's one of the reasons that women now say safety, security, law and order, and the economy are the top issues for them. They want to make certain that their communities are safe. 
who is the largest purchaser of handguns right now? It is women. Who is the group signing up most often for gun safety classes? It is women. And primarily, it is suburban women because they have realized they are going to have to step to the forefront to protect their families. I I was talking to a woman the other day, and her elderly parents live about 20, 25 minutes from her. She had purchased a handgun, had taken a safety class, because she said, I may need it at home, but there is no way I'm going to get in the car and drive to the other side of town to see my parents and not have a firearm with me. And she felt she just needed to do this for herself and for her parents. So she did. So I think what is happening is people are looking at how government has acted, and primarily their state and local governments, how they have acted during the uh, the COVID ep- epidemic. And they are saying, hey, wait a minute. This is where government has overstepped. Uh, They see that President Trump, when federal agencies were not moving fast enough, he called in the pharmaceutical companies, he called in the retailers, he called in people that manufacture or could manufacture PPE and ventilators. He called them to the White House and sat them down and said, we have a problem to solve. People like seeing that. As you have seen the Democrats try to blame him, uh, they said, no, I don't think that's quite right. When the Democratic Party had their convention and went the entire week and never called out the rioting, looting, vandalism, anarchy, revolutionaries in the street, people said, hey, wait a minute. You know, these things are crimes. You need to talk about this. And I was honored at the RNC to be the one to support and recognize our everyday heroes, our law enforcement, our health care providers, our first responders, our men and women in the U.S. military, because what did you hear at the Democrat convention? They want to defund the police. They want to underfund the military. They want to abolish ICE. And they these are not the value system sets that uh, women have. They want a strong military and a strong defense. That's right. And again, uh, the the new book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Senator Marsha Blackburn. I want to make sure and let folks know where they can find more information, not only about the book, but uh, but everything you've got going on in Washington as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Every major retailer has the book either in store or online. And if they're looking for a great read that will give them the history of conservatism, going back into the founding of our Judeo-Christian ethic and federalism, there in Jerusalem in the 12 tribes of Israel, and then looking at Athens, looking at London, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and through the writings of de Tocqueville and Burke and the French Revolution, and coming up through Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley, Frederick Hayek, bringing us to modern-day conservatism. If they're looking for a guidebook of how to talk about conservatism and current issues, 
to their friends and family and co-worker. Explain to their children what they believe. This is essential reading for women in how to talk about their value system. And we're continuing the conversation online, whether it is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parlor. You will find me at Marsha Says, M-A-R-S-H-A-S-A-Y-S, at Marsha Says. And we're going to continue this conversation to make certain that women have the skill sets they need to be happy warriors and to get out here and help save our country. That's right. Well, again, Senator, I appreciate your time this morning and uh, the, the the work that you've done putting the book out. Look forward to uh, to visiting again and hope you have a great rest of your week, ma'am. Thank you so much. Take care now. Find out more at blackburn.senate.gov. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. And if you ever have a comment, question, or anything else you'd like to know, find me on Instagram aka underscore Cameron, on Twitter at Cameron Dole, and on my Facebook page at Cameron Dole Altus. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, feel free to click the support tab and follow the instructions. We'll see you real soon for episode 11 